Well, I said to you earlier that uh, we'll be getting Vacation Bible School next Monday. And so <clears throat> what we'd like to do, uh, or what I'm going to do, is uh, the young people that will be coming to Vacation Bible School are going to be looking at a uh, particular story in the Bible uh, called the Exodus. And uh, although they're going to be meeting for five nights, this Sunday and next Sunday, I'd like to lift up a couple of key themes in the uh, uh, lessons that your young people, your children, your grandchildren will be learning uh, this year at Vacation Bible School for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's important that you know uh, what your young people are being taught here at Vacation Bible School at South Suburban Church, and also to just give you some key themes that you might engage some of our young people in conversation, that you might be prepared to answer the questions that they'll bring home. It's important uh, to realize and recognize that uh, although it's a common misconception that it's the church's job to train your children, that's not true. God has established uh, parents and families to be the way in which children are discipled and raised in the faith. But we, as your church family, are partners with you uh, in that endeavor. And so we want to prepare and, and uh, open you to the things that they'll be learning so that you can help uh, continue to drive those points home and disciple your young people. So uh, they're going to be studying the, uh, the, the, the story of the Exodus. And so we're going to begin, if you will, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Uh, we're not going to be able to cover all of the lessons that they'll be doing but we're going to be able to look uh, today at uh, how the whole uh, story began as the Hebrew people were taken into slavery and bondage in Egypt, and then some of the things that happened uh, as they were being led out of bondage in the wilderness uh, toward the promised land, some of the things uh, that uh, are unique in the experiences there. So if you have your Bibles open, Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons when Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. 
and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra, and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and, uh, they, and when they give birth, see, I lost that word vigorous, and when they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and they multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. May God add his blessing to this, the reading of his holy and perfect word. Amen. Before we get into some of the more complicated parts of this story, I want us to begin thinking about this story in a very particular way. And that is this, that your story, our story, is a part of a bigger story. Now, the Hebrew text that we get the English translation that we read to you this morning actually leaves some words out. And one of the key words is the very first word of the book of Exodus. It's not translated. And that word is the word and. Now, that may seem like an insignificant word, but in actuality, it is a significantly important word to remind us of where this chapter begins in the story of God and God's plan of redemption. That is, is that the very first word, and, is intended to, to, to show to each of us that this is not the beginning of a new story, but it is the continuation of an old story. Now, the old story is the book of Genesis, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks as we go through a sh short and brief series through the first part of Genesis. But the word Genesis literally means the beginning, and the word Exodus, as you can well imagine, means the leaving or the going out. And so this really is sort of act two of a whole play. We began in the beginning in the book of Genesis, and now we're looking at the Exodus or how people left. Not only is the story a part of a bigger story in regards to uh, the lesson that's given to in the scriptures, but it's a bigger story that connects back to the yesterday of the Hebrew people. The very first uh, explanation that occurs in the first verse, in the second verse, up through the fourth verse of uh, Exodus chapter 1, is a recounting of the forebears of the Hebrew people. That is, is the 12 sons from whom the 12 tribes of Israel come from. This is an indicator that even though folks have their own unique identity within the tribes, 
that they are a part of something bigger, that they are a part of something that is a, 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 a realization of God's providence. The folks are, are hearing this, they're, they're reading this, uh, some scholars say in the midst of their exodus, other scholars say after their exodus, but, but nevertheless, it, it's certainly, it's not prophetic, it's not something that hasn't happened yet, it's something that the Hebrew people have already experienced. And as, as, as they're experiencing this, uh, the author is trying to, to speak to us, your story doesn't begin with the bondage. Your story doesn't begin with being made a slave. And even though it's difficult in the midst of trial and tribulation to see clearly God's providence throughout just that first chapter of Exodus, we are reminded of God's promises. I tried to give it some accentuation as I was reading it to you. But in verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew strongly. Again in verse 12, as they were oppressed, the author says, and the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread abroad. Even when Pharaoh has told Shifra and Pua to kill every, first, every male child, when they refuse to obey the Pharaoh, when they are faithful to God, the text says the people multiplied and grew strongly. This is a phrase that should be a part of your own mind and your own thinking when you, when you, when you read the Scriptures, when you read the Old Testament. It, it began in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when as God set Adam and Eve in the garden, he, saw, he told them to what? Be fruitful and multiply. Again, after the flood, when God had preserved Noah and his family, after Noah and his family had been saved and the dry land had appeared again, God says to Noah in Genesis 9, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply. When God comes to Abraham and makes his covenant with him in Genesis 22, 17, he says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as stars in the heaven and as the sands of the seashore. And again, to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, and to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, God says again to them, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a company of nations shall come from you. So you see, the original mandate and God's creative order is that his people were to be fruitful. They were to multiply. And so, in other words, as we're reading this text in the first chapter of Exodus, what we're hearing is a continuation of God's promise. What good is it to be fruitful and multiply if, if, if our destiny is slavery and bondage? What good is it to be fruitful and multiply if God will turn a deaf ear to our cries? What difference does it make to be fruitful and multiply if God doesn't have a plan for us and for our heirs? It is intended to, to, to cause us to pull back in our vision, to understand that our story is a part of a bigger story. It is intended to discipline us, to, to, to remind ourselves that it's not just my life, it's not just Ike Nicholson, it's not just 
the years that I will live on the earth that God is fulfilling his promise, but that God's promise was for my ancestors, is for me and the company of saints, and will be for those who come after us. Now, when we talk about the Bible, and I've shared this with you, when we talk about the Bible, we talk about the Bible, and I gave you a big word a couple of weeks ago. It's the word meta-narrative. It just literally means the big story. There's a big story in Scripture. And the big story is that God's love is unrelenting, that God's work of redemption is providential, that God's effort to redeem humanity and bring them back into relationship with Him, He is sovereign. Did you know that the story that we're reading here in the Exodus and that your young people will read in Exodus is mentioned in the New Testament or referenced in the New Testament over 217 times? Now, you see, just like the story of Exodus begins with a reminder that the people are in bondage, the New Testament reminds us that we're in bondage. And I know all of you have felt that way. I know that you've gone through times in your life when you felt out of control. We all feel that way when the physician tells us that we have a disease, that the cure rate is significantly low. We all feel that way when our spouse tells us that they don't love us anymore. We all feel that way when the news comes and our husband or our wife has been told that they only have a few months to live. We We all can recall the facts and memories that we used to be able to remember clearly, but no longer are we able to remember them and bring them to our lips and to be able to speak them. And We realize that all of us at one time in our life have experienced bondage. We we all have been confronted with our goals and our desires and and then we're told by our company or we're told by our church board or, or, or we're told by our family that we've decided to move in a new direction. And it's in those moments when we assess our life. It's in those moments when we wonder where meaning is. It's in those moments where we wonder where hope is. It's in those moments where we wonder where purpose is. It's in those moments we wonder if God really is listening to us, if God hears us, and if God does hear us, does God care? You see, your struggle is a part of a larger struggle, just like your story is a part of a bigger story. And I don't know about you, but for me, if I know that the bad stuff that I'm going through has a trajectory that will ultimately be positive, it's much easier for me to handle the bad stuff. When I know that there's purpose in my pain, it's easier to endure the pain. I remember when I was a kid, our next door neighbor, uh, his name was Steve Smith. We've kind of fallen away from being friends. Isn't that horrible that that happens in adulthood? But I remember Steve and I were out playing in the woods and he got this huge, a splinter is an understatement, this huge chunk of wood that got shoved up under his hand. It looked horrible. We, went to, we rushed home, went to my mother. My mother was a nurse. She loved to doctor on you, even if there wasn't anything that needed doctoring. <laughs> and, I, and, 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 and his hand was, was throbbing with pain. And I remember that as my mother grabbed that huge splinter and yanked it quickly out of him, he screamed. And my mother said, did that hurt? And he said, yes, but it was a good kind of hurt. 
And I'll never forget that because in the midst of that young playmate that I had as a kid, those words have rung true throughout my life, that there have been times in my life when I have hurt, but it's been a good kind of hurt. It's been a hurt that points me to something bigger than who I am. It's been a hurt that points to meaning that's bigger than who I am. You and I live in a dark and hostile world. This world is broken. This world has fallen. This world is arrogant. This world is greedy. This world only cares about itself. And in the midst of this brokenness, God is at work with a larger design, a bigger agenda to accomplish what he sovereignly has decided shall come to pass. Now in verses 8 through 22, we read how uh, the new king has arisen and this new king doesn't know Joseph. And probably in the text, it's, it's not that he doesn't know Joseph, it's that he just doesn't care about Joseph. It's not that his history teacher in, in Pharaoh's school didn't tell him about how his nation had been redeemed from famine because of this Hebrew who had come and become prime minister. It's that he just didn't care about it. Now, now there's a little parenthetical side that I want to share with you here. This new pharaoh decides that this growth of an ethnic group, which is not his own, is something to fear. And the way he decides to confront this growing ethnic group that he fears is to make them slaves. That is his, 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 his diabolical, wise plan is to conquer them through oppression, to conquer them through discrimination. Now, now, now some, some folks called new atheists will talk about this particular story and they'll say something, and, and this is really kind of outside of the vein of the, of the message, so I want to get through it quickly, is, is they'll say the Hebrew people were forced to build the pyramids in Egypt. And then they go through a long discussion about how the pyramids predate the coming of the Hebrews to Egypt. And then they, 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 they finalize and summarize by saying, see, this story isn't true. Now, in Aristotelian logic, in classical education, we call this a straw man fallacy. That is, we set up something that isn't true in order to prove a point that we know is false. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Hebrew slaves built the pyramids. It says that the Hebrew slaves were forced to build Pythos and Ramses, which were storage cities. Why is that a big deal? Because the danger that many in this group called New Atheists seek to do is to diminish the story of the Hebrew people. As a matter of fact, they argue that the Hebrew people didn't even come to Egypt until 600 B.C., and that when they came, they came as warriors, not as slaves. Now, this isn't something new that the Hebrew people aren't used to. They have, all of their lives, had people deny the validity of the suffering that they've gone through. They've had people deny that the Holocaust happened. And that was just 75 years ago, not thousands of years ago. And this is dangerous because when you deny the events that form a people and who they are, you deny the people themselves. You deny their own humanity. 
I just wanted to lift that up to you, to be careful, because that is, the, that is the trending ideology, that is the trending debates and arguments that we're hearing in our culture today. This story of the Exodus is significant in the history of the Hebrew people, and we as Christians, it is significant to us as well. You see, the power of the book of Exodus is that in many ways it is a foreshadowing of Christ. Pharaoh, driven by his own self-interest, by his own political expediency, by his own prejudice, is willing to, is willing to uh, subject an entire people to heartache and misery. We have to be careful about those sorts of things. If we're the ones being persecuted, we need to take hope. But if we're the ones that are persecuting, it's in persecution that growth occurs. The blessing of God does not mean the absence of suffering. As a matter of fact, Jesus in John 16 says, in this world you will have what? Trouble. Or Paul in Acts 14 verse 22, through many hardships we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, it's important to understand that it is not God who is causing these bad things to happen. It is a broken world that is victimizing its own citizens that God miraculously steps in the midst of in order to redeem. God gets blamed for so many things that aren't God's fault. But you and I need to be careful too. That in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our struggle, we don't lose hope in the sovereign God. And even consider the power of suffering, the power of pain. This past week, our chair of the elders, Mark Cutler, made this statement at our board meeting. He said, God is at work here at South Suburban Christian Church. Growth is everywhere. we got new members, people accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God is blessing our congregation with a culture of generosity. That might be my phrase, but it's sort of what he meant. (laughs) And time, talent, and treasure. And it's in the midst of these positive things that the world hates. The world hates that. And the world will seek to step in. And this might be a barometer for you. If you are experiencing a horrific time in life, get ready. Because God is about to do something great in your life. The powers of darkness know the might of God and the work of God in your life. The powers of darkness know the gifts that you have, the strengths that you have, the desires that you have. As individuals, as a family, as a church... And when the powers of darkness launch their attacks against us, be encouraged because that means God is positioning us that he might be glorified, that the gospel might go forth. And so you and I need to live in the confidence that God is sovereign. I love these two, these two midwives, these two women. If y'all know of anybody getting ready to have children, and they know that it's a little girl, these are some names that are great names. Pua and Shifra. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? 
And these two women, when the king had given them the evil edicts that they were to kill every male child, they what? They feared God over everyone else. They didn't fear the government. They didn't fear the king. They didn't fear the powers of darkness. They feared God and these women. These women who are honored by being named in Scripture, whereas Pharaoh is never named, finds himself up against a sovereign and providential God. In his own foolishness, he thinks that he can thwart the plans of God, that he can counter the blessings of God. And because these two midwives were faithful to God, God not only continued to bless the nation, but the text says that God blessed them as well. And so when Pharaoh realizes that he's been unable to thwart the plan of God between these women, he calls on the whole nation. Can you imagine getting this memo from the leader of a nation that whenever you see a male child of the Hebrew people, you can cast that child into the Nile River? What Egypt doesn't know is is that they're not in control. So don't fear the governments of human beings. God is the one who reigns. God is the Lord. And there are kingdoms in conflict here, but nothing can stop the advance and victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness. You and I need to understand that our daily struggle with sin and sorrow that our quiet prejudice or our open hostility is not something that's just relegated to our own hearts, but it is a part of the cosmic war. But know this, the providence of God always prevails. As a matter of fact, the doctrine of a sovereign God is the foundational doctrine of what it means to be the people of God. On this Father's Day, I hope that you and I will remember these faithful women. On this Father's Day, I hope that you and I will remember these faithful mothers who trusted God, obeyed God, stood with God's kingdom, that we might learn to imitate their style of life and our part of the larger conflict, the cosmic battle. You see, for us as Christians, the hero of this big story is not these two women, though. It's not even the Hebrew people. The hero of this story is not us. We always do that when we come to the Scriptures. We look for the the hero of the story, and then we try to say, well, I want to change my life so I reflect the hero of the story. You need to hear this, and you're going to hear, until you fire me, you're going to hear this over and over and over. The hero of the story is Jesus Christ. The hero of the story is the Lamb of God and the King of Kings. And this story of the Exodus is a foreshadowing of the coming of the one who will fulfill the final providential plan of God. For Jesus is not only the second Adam, as Paul says in the book of Romans, but Jesus is for you and for me the second Moses. Isn't it interesting That when Moses was born, the king was trying to kill all the other little boys. And when Jesus was born, what was the king trying to do? Kill all the other little boys. It's not by accident that Moses was in bondage in Egypt and and, and put into the reeds in the Nile River. And that Jesus, in order to escape the, the, the demonic plans of King Herod, he fled to Egypt with his family. 
And it's not by mistake that the Hebrew people come out of Egypt into the promised land. And then Jesus comes out of Egypt into Nazareth and from there embarks upon the plan to redeem the world. Just as Herod was unsuccessful, Pharaoh was unsuccessful. And just as time and time again in the scriptures, darkness is unsuccessful, so too is darkness unsuccessful today, and darkness will be unsuccessful tomorrow. You see, it's not in our faith or our courage that we're able to face trials, but it is Christ in us and around us and over us. It's not we who work hard enough to redeem ourselves, but it is the Lamb of God who suffered himself to be crucified upon a Roman cross, who rose again and who ascended in the triumph of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and took his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. The battle, if you you don't remember anything today, remember this. The battle does not belong to us. The battle belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the one that has risen. He is the one who has conquered Satan and death. He is the one who has toppled the kingdoms of darkness. And he, the God-man, our elder brother, our savior, our friend, he is the one who sits on the glorious throne of our lives and the throne of all of creation. Our story is a part of a bigger story. The unfolding plan of God, a plan that cannot fail. Our struggle is a part of a larger struggle. The cosmic conflict of the kingdom of God with the world. And we live in the confidence that God is sovereign. That the promise of God and the triumph of the one who is both the second Adam and the second Moses. The person of Jesus Christ. And listen, brothers. Listen, sisters. Listen, dads. Listen, moms. Listen, young people. As you rest on him, as you rest on God's providence, as you take faith in God's sovereignty, only then will you and I find the strength to stay in the fight and press on.